Well, hello, Red Hills Church. How you doing today? Good. Look at someone next to you say, he is risen. I am so glad that you're here. Welcome to our Easter gatherings at Red Hills Church. Everyone online, I'm so glad that you're here watching. You're just as much as part of what God is doing in this place. Hey, church family, can we welcome everyone online? Let them hear you. Come on. One thing I love to say about Red Hills Church is that at our church, it's okay to not be okay. And I firmly believe that in my heart. We want to be a place that's welcoming, that's loving, that's gracious, that's kind, because I believe that's how we can approach uh, God and approach Jesus. Well, today I want to talk about the resurrection. Surprise. Uh, I want to talk about the reason we are here. You see, the cross of Jesus has significance because of the resurrection. Many people have died for their faith, but only one has risen from the grave. Can somebody say amen? So we're going to talk about that today. And we're going to read what the scriptures say about the resurrection. So we're going to be in the book of Matthew. If you have your Bibles or your phones, you can start to turn there with me. Matthew chapter 27. I want to talk about the tomb today, and I want to talk about the place where Jesus was buried. So uh, what I decided to do is to give you a visual tour of the Holy Land of where people think Jesus was buried. I want to give you context to when we read the scripture uh, so that you can maybe imagine what we're talking about. How many of you have ever been to Israel before? Anybody in the room? All right, I'm going to take you to the first picture is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. This is the traditional site of the burial of Jesus. Uh, Constantine had this church built in uh, the 4th century AD. In fact, when he became a Christian, he asked his mother to go to the Holy Land and find out where Jesus was buried so he could build a church. So she discovered, or she thought, investigated, and, and thought that this is where Jesus was buried. So they built a church around the tomb of Jesus. Now, uh, we got to go inside uh, the church, uh, and the next picture is what you see if you walk inside this church, and that is what is called the edicule. Uh, and uh, it is believed to be that the tomb of Jesus is inside that room. Now, when I went to Israel in 2018, uh, I didn't get to go inside there because the line was too long, but I found a picture of the inside of the edicule. And so the next picture is uh, where they believe the slab or the stone of Jesus where his body was laid. Now, what some of you might not realize is that there's not only one place that they think Jesus was buried, but there are two places that they think Jesus was buried. The next one is called the Garden Tomb. Uh, and uh, the Garden Tomb uh, is where it was discovered in 1857, I think. And it was discovered because someone saw in the rock face, on the cutout of a rock face, a picture or an image of a skull. So if you know your biblical history, the word Calvary is the Greek word Golgotha, which means place of the skull. So if we could get to this next picture. Well, not that one. Do we have one more? 
That's it. All right. We don't have the picture, but if I could show it to you, in 1857, someone snapped a picture, and in this rock cutout, uh, you see uh, like eye sockets, a nose, and a mouth, and then they found this tomb, and you go to the next one where I come out of the tomb uh, in 2018, of where Jesus was buried. Now, this feels more like what it would be like in the first century, whether it was at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre or the Garden Tomb, the reality is we know a lot about the story of where Jesus was buried. So Matthew 27, grab your Bibles, look on your phones, follow along. Uh, 27, I'm going to read in verse 57 about the burial of Jesus. Here we go. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, this would be Saturday, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse, worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. I want to put up that last verse for you because I want to preach out of this one verse. In verse 66, it says this. It says that, um, that when he was buried, um, they made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. There are four elements in this story that I want to point out to you today about the burial of Jesus and how secure they made his tomb. And these four elements are the following. I want to talk about the tomb. I want to talk about the stone. I want to talk about the guard. And I want to talk about the seal. I want to talk about the tomb, the stone, the guard, and the seal. All four of these elements were intended to keep Jesus in and keep other people out. It was a way of securing the tomb so that a resurrection could not happen. And these four things are what held Jesus captive and contained within this dark tomb. So I want to talk about the tomb first of all. The tomb, as you saw on some of those pictures, is a cutout, would have been a cutout in a rock face. Now, it's interesting that they say a rich man, Joseph. Do you know why they call him a rich man? Because Jesus, as a criminal, could not be buried in a family tomb. He could not be buried with other people. So it, the law would prohibit him from being entombed in a family tomb. The other thing was this. 
is that once he was buried in that tomb, that tomb could be used by no one ever again. So Joseph gave up his own tomb, his own legacy, his own family's tomb for Jesus to be buried. The second thing I want to talk about is the stone. It says this, that, that Joseph rolled the stone in front of the tomb. So a stone in the first century AD to cover a tomb like this would have been 4,000 pounds. It would have been the weight of your car or maybe even your truck. And the question is this, well, how did Joseph roll the stone? All right. So what you've got to understand in a first century uh, burial site is that this stone would have been on an incline, like a channel. It would have been not a big rock like you see in, in kind of the like kid Easter, you know, like this. there's this rock. It would have been a, a, a stone that could be rolled in a channel. It would have been chalked by a piece of wood or another small stone where all Jace, Joseph had to do is pull that out and let the, stu, the stone turn and and, and roll in place in front of the tomb. Then it would have sealed the tomb up. They did this for a couple reasons. Number one, so that grave robbers wouldn't come and steal things on the body of the deceased. Number two, so wild animals couldn't get in. Then there's the guards. We've got the tomb, the stone, and the guards. The guards, this one's interesting. You might think that the guards were there to prevent a resurrection, but Pilate and, and the Jewish people did not think that, any, that Jesus was going to be resurrected. They feared that somebody was going to steal the body and stage a resurrection. And so they asked for a guard. In fact, most people believe the word guard here means the word watch, that it wasn't just one guard. It would have been a division of Roman soldiers, so it would have been four guards. Now, let me describe the Roman guards to you in the first century AD. These men would have been trained for the military. They would have been considered like special forces today, maybe an army ranger or a Navy SEAL. They served in the Roman military for 20 years. And every Roman guard had a gladius, which is a small sword that they fought with, and they had a javelin. They had a helmet, and they had armor. A Roman guard was intimidating. And so they were trained with their weapons to kill expertly at any one or anything that came their way. Why do I describe the guards to you? Because these guards were no lightweights. I mean, they weren't wimps. They weren't chicken at what was going to happen. They were career military men, fierce warriors. And then there's this last part that I've read this story a hundred times, but I've never studied this one element. The seal. It says that they put a seal over the stone. And the seal would have been made of molded clay, pressed on the stone with ropes, and imprinted with the Roman seal, the seal of the Caesar or the Roman emperor. And this would have been designed, obviously not to keep people out, but it would have been recognized in the first century as the ability that if you broke that seal, you would face the full force of the Roman army and the Roman military. You would face execution if you broke that seal. That was Rome's way of saying that if you break this, you are dead. You would face Rome's wrath. Now, it's interesting because the guards... 
after the resurrection of Jesus, and we're going to read that in just a moment. The guards um, uh, do something, uh, they're in a predicament that if they say someone broke the seal, but they have no one to point to, then they're going to face death. If they say that someone stole Jesus' body, but they don't have a suspect, they're going to face death. If they see Jesus rose from the dead and actually walked out of the tomb, they're going to face death. So the Roman guards had every incentive to keep that tomb sealed, to keep it shut, to keep it separate from everything else. The tomb of Jesus. Jesus is the most heavily guarded dead man that we've ever seen in all of human history. His body was secure. It was interesting because these four things, the tomb, the stone, the guards, and the seals, were Rome's attempt to keep Jesus captive in the tomb. There's this concept in Christianity. In fact, it's not a footnote in the biblical story. It's actually a major theme in the biblical story. And it's that since the fall of man, when Adam and Eve first sinned, that men and women have been held captive by their sin, their pain, their shame, their circumstances, their wounds, and their life. That they have been held captive by powerful forces that are working against them. And that the mission of Jesus, when he came on this earth, was to set people free. In fact, a few weeks ago, I talked about the first sermon that Jesus ever preached. It's found in Luke chapter 4. That his first sermon was all about people finding freedom. He said, I came to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, sight for the blind, and to free the oppressed. And when Jesus preaches his first sermon, what he's talking about is he wants to set people spiritually free. And so this concept that men and women have been held captive and the mission and plan of God all along was to set people free. And the way he does that is the most unlikely way and the most unlikely story as he does it through the cross and he does it through the grave. That victory comes through death. Think about it. Jesus allowed himself to be arrested, nailed to a cross, taken to a tomb to be held captive, to become what we are, entombed in a rock so that he could set us free. Do you realize that Jesus broke all barriers of what people thought he came to do? People thought that Jesus came to give them political freedom. The Jews were under oppression from the Rome. But he said, I did not come to give you political freedom. He said, I came to give you spiritual freedom. I want to set you free. Now, there's this idea we've been exploring as a church for the past few weeks. And we're in the middle of this series called Invisible Prisons. And what we're doing is we're looking at the prison narratives in Scripture and we're seeing what God does in the prison narratives of Scripture. And so we looked at Joseph. Next week, we're going to look at Daniel. We're going to look at Paul and Silas. We're going to look at all these stories where evil men have tried to keep God's faithful people held captive and what God does. And what we see is that it's in these prison places where God moves the most. Now, there are areas in our own life that keep us captive. While many of you may not see the inside of a prison cell, you may see the inside of a spiritual prison cell. I call them invisible 
prisons, the circumstances in your life that keep you contained, that keep you trapped. It's like a tomb. It's like a stone. It's like a seal. It's like the guards. Things that are intended and designed to keep you trapped. Now, in the Bible, the prison has been used by evil people to keep God's plan in power from actually working. But here's the thing. Here's the paradox that, that, that is all throughout the Bible, that not only does the plan of God uh, not get stopped, but actually the prison places become the very uh, a platform for God to move in a powerful way. Here's how I've been saying it, that the prison places in our life become the platform for God's power and the platform for God's plan. You see, when everyone looks at the prison places through scripture, when you think about them, you imagine that these are the times where, where evil is going to succeed, but it's in these moments that God moves the most. In fact, I've been saying this, it almost seems like God prefers the prison places to move. Now, what does this mean for your own life? What does this mean for you? I wanna talk about you, have you ever felt like you've been in an invisible prison, stuck, captured, held captive? And, and, and it can be anything. It can be an addiction. It can be sin. It could be a circumstance. It could be a relationship. It could be anxiety. It could be a depression. It could be sickness or a disease. You see, as I was studying this scripture, God opened my eyes to something that I'd never seen before, that, 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 that as in this invisible prisons, as Jesus was entombed to keep the power of God held captive and, and the stone was rolled and the guards were set and the seal was put there to keep uh, God's power held captive, I think there are areas in our life that keep us captive, four areas. Actually, the Lord revealed to me that each one of these things, the tomb, the stone, the guards, and the seals represent something that holds us back. I want to talk about these just for a moment. First of all, I want to talk about the tomb. What does the tomb represent? The tomb represents darkness. The tomb is dark. It represents the darkness. Now, maybe some of you have experienced darkness, and I'm not talking about being in a room with the lights off. I'm talking about a spiritual darkness that you faced. Maybe there's areas in your life that seem dark. Maybe there's areas in your life that are like a tomb that seem dead. Listen, I've been a pastor for 20 years. I've had people sit in my office and tell me their marriage is dead. They tell me their career is over. They tell me areas of their life, painful moments where they need God's power. Maybe... For some of you, it's maybe you feel like your marriage is dead. Maybe you don't have a relationship with your kids. Maybe there are areas in your life that seem painful. Maybe you don't know what's wrong, but there's a chasm or a gap that's inside of you where you want to experience joy, but you're not feeling it. You're not experiencing it. You see, Jesus came to extinguish the darkness. John 1, 4, and 5, Jesus said this, or John says this, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not 
overcome it. The tomb represents darkness. I want to talk about the stone. What's the stone? The stone represents separation. Just like the stone separated the living from the dead, it separates everything that was within the tomb with everything that's outside of the tomb. Literally, the stone separates that which is living to that which is dead. A lot of times we have stones in our own life that keep us separated from God. I think the biggest one we see in Scripture is what the Scripture calls sin. You know, it's interesting. Sin... um, as defined by most people, means missing the mark. And a lot of times we think sin is separation. We think of it as personal sin, something I did. But I like to share with people, and I will preach this until I die, is that sin is more than just your personal sin. Sin is the pervasiveness of evil in the entire world. And some people feel separated from God, not only from their own sin, but from the sin of others that have done to them. And so people experience wounds and they experience pain and they experience separation, not just because of something they did, but oftentimes because of something someone else did to them. Do you have a stone in your own life, something that keeps you contained? You know, oftentimes we try to roll the stone back on our own. You know, at 4,000 pounds, One man could not roll the stone. It would take several. And no one could roll the stone from the inside. There's no way. There's no handles. There's no leverage that you could use. There's no way. It doesn't matter how many men were inside this. You could not roll this thing uphill. You see, the reason that God sent Jesus on this earth is because he knew that we couldn't do it on our own. He knew that we couldn't roll the stones away in our own life. He knew that We could not get to God without a plan and without his son, Jesus. That we can't live a victorious life without the power of God living in us. I love what Romans 8, 11 says. It says this, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. What is Paul saying? He's saying that the same Holy Spirit... That, that, that revived the heart of Jesus after he'd been dead is the same spirit that lives in you. The same spirit that empowered Jesus in the wilderness during the temptation from the devil is the same spirit you can have in the, in the wilderness experiences of your life. The same spirit that descended upon Jesus as a dove when he was baptized is the same spirit that can come upon you. The tomb, the stone, and we have the guards. What does the guards represent? The guard represents fear. You know, fear is one of the most powerful negative emotions that we can experience as people. And just like the Roman guards created fear in the Jewish people, we experience fear in our own lives. You know, as I look back in the past couple years, a lot of people experience fear. And it's interesting because nobody would say that they experienced fear. But some people were afraid of getting sick. Some people were afraid of dying. Some people were afraid of getting their freedoms taken away. There was a lot of fear happening in the last two years. Are you with me? How do you know you have fear in your life? You see, when you have fear in your life, you try to do one thing. You try to control. If you begin to control things, I guarantee you, you trace that back, it's because you have a fear in your life. And whenever we have fear, we attempt to control the things that are around us. 
Fear manifests itself in many different ways, but oftentimes it manifests in control. Maybe some of you live in fear. Maybe some live in fear in giving your life to Jesus fully. Maybe some of you live in fear of what your family would think or what your friends would think. You know, I remember I was an intern at uh, my dad's work, 3M, and I was studying in the environmental engineering department, which was a fancy way of saying waste management. (laughs) And, And I was studying, and I was in college, I was taking sciences, I have a associate's degree in science, and um, and as I was studying, it's in the middle of this, my second year into it, and I'm in this internship, and I'm on track where God calls me to be a pastor. And I had to tell my family. <laughs> I had to tell my friends, right? They were like, what? You want to do what? Right? Are you ever going to get married? I mean, this is how people, most of my friends were Catholic, so they're like, are you, you know, what's going to, uh, are you going to wear a collar? Like, what's going to happen? I had, I had fear. I had to walk through those things in my life. Let me ask you a question. What are you afraid of in giving your life fully to Jesus? Let me talk about the fourth one, the seal. The seal, the seal that was used by Rome as a symbol of punishment and intimidation. The seal represents this. It represents opposition in our life. You know that there is an enemy that is around us. We call him the adversary. We call him the devil. We call him Satan, demons. There are spiritual forces that are against God's people. In fact, the Apostle Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 6. He said that there are powers, principalities. There are dark forces that are spiritually at work against us, attempting to push you and keep you from God. It's interesting because the devil is fine with you being in church and even listening to a sermon like this unless you change your life. He's fine with you going to church and listening to the message. What he's not okay with is transformation happening in your life. You know, I warn people when they come to know Jesus. I warn them all the time. I, uh, that, that, that sometimes coming to Jesus, your life gets harder. I know some, some of us were raised in an environment where you're going to be blessed if you, you know, love Jesus. And you are going to be blessed. But we think that there's no more problems. But here's what happens when you cross the line from death to life. Is, is you had opposition before. You just didn't have a name for it. But when you cross over, all of a sudden you have a name for it. And you realize that there are things in your life that are opposing you, trying to keep you from fully following Jesus, four things, the tomb, the stone, the guards, the seal, darkness, separation, opposition, and fear. Now I want to finish with the resurrection story. Chapter 28 of Matthew, verse 1, it talks about what happened after the Sabbath at dawn, On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothes were white as snow. 
The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. You see, the tomb and the stone and the guards and the seal were not enough to contain the power of God. The prison place in this story actually becomes the greatest platform for God's power to move. The enemy wanted to keep the power of God contained, and in this prison place, it was his power was present. You know, it's interesting because it's oftentimes that we are embarrassed, ashamed about the lowest places of our life. The hardest places, the deepest places, the most painful places of our life. We try to hide it. It's why I say at our church, our, our church, it's okay to not be okay because we want to be able to expose the pain that we experience because it's in that exposure that God can heal. God only heals what you uncover. He's not going to dig it out of you unless you open yourself up to him and, and bear that before him. But it's in the lowest places that we try to hide. But oftentimes I want to tell you that it's in your lowest place that becomes the stage for God's glory to move. It is the story of the Gospels. It isn't just a story. It is the story that victory comes through death, that power comes through the prison places in your life. It doesn't matter how dark. It doesn't matter how deep. It doesn't matter how painful. God not only moves in those places, but it seems to me that he prefers to move in those places. Why is that? Because when the miracle comes, and the miracle will come, it all points to Jesus. It's no disciples that stole his body, all right? There's no other story for it. It's not that you didn't roll the stone away, that God provided the miracle. I want to show you a video of someone from our church that has an incredible story and testimony. Would you watch this video of Shelby? Even in the midst of darkness, God has showed up for me. My name is Shelby Collins. I was born in Montana, and in 2019, my husband and I decided that since we were having a baby, he needed to get out of the military and come back home so that we had a stable environment for my daughter. Growing up, I have always had a heart for God. I just remember being in my front yard, laying down on the grass and looking up at the skies, and just kind of knowing something else was out there, but I didn't know what it was. I can still feel the feeling. My heart felt heavy, but it felt peaceful. My parents were not religious. If they were anything, they believed in, you know, the darker side of things. I was always scared you know, scared to come in my house. And, you know, at the time I didn't know, am I scared on what I'm gonna walk into? Are they, you know, are they drinking or am I scared? Because the house just feels dark, the house just feels heavy. My first experiences with church, I was very young, maybe five or six, and my parents would drop us off at a, at a Bible study at a random church, I didn't know anybody. I have two vivid memories of being yelled at at church, and I don't know why. I was in trouble, and then, 
I remember my parents coming to pick us up and they were very drunk. There was, you know, every single time that they drank, it either ended in walls being punched or them in jail. I watched my dad suffer with depression and my mom just kind of shrug it off like, oh, he's not depressed, he's just an alcoholic. Throughout my childhood, I, I watched him drink himself away. I knew that he felt angry and hurt that he was putting his children through that experience. He didn't know what else to do other than to drink the pain away. I lost my dad to mental illness in 2019 and it was definitely the hardest time in my life. When I think of God turning beauty from ashes, I think of when I was in middle school, I had a um, PE teacher who was the first adult that I had confided in. And he gave me a little quote that said, flowers can't grow without a thunderstorm. To see the work that God does, you know, even though we don't always get to choose the situation we're going through, good or bad, um, we just have to trust in what God has planned for us and the pain that we're going through will always make something beautiful on the other side. I see my story now as a story of God's faithfulness. Can we just celebrate Shelby's story? You see, this is what God does. He takes the most painful places and the darkest places and the hurtful places, and he turns them into beauty. It's where his power is most clearly seen in those areas. Let me ask you a question. Do you want to taste that kind of freedom? Do you want to experience that kind of freedom of the power of God and the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the grave? Do you want to experience what that's like? Do you want the seal broken, the guards defeated, the stone rolled away, and the tomb lit up? Do you want to experience the presence and the power of Jesus? There's only one answer, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to Jesus today. In the book of Romans, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Here's what I wanna do, friends, today, is I wanna lead you in a prayer, a prepare, prayer to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. And I'm gonna ask everyone in the room, and if you're online, I wanna ask you to do this with me as well. Would you repeat this prayer after me? 
And if you're here today and you feel like there's a dark place, you feel separated, maybe you have fear, or maybe there's opposition in this moment, you want to invite Jesus into your life. You want to invite the power of God into the very places of your life that seem broken, that seem painful, that seem hurt. I want you to mean this prayer in your heart. This is between you and God. So everyone in the room, would you repeat this prayer after me? Dear God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for sending Jesus into this world. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. I believe he rose from the grave. Forgive me of my sins and give me the gift of eternal life. Give me your spirit to help me live the life you've called me to. In your name, amen. Would you keep your eyes closed and your heads bowed just for one more moment? I wanna ask you today, I don't wanna embarrass you. I'm not gonna point you out. I just wanna agree with you. If you're here today and you made that decision, you invited Jesus, whether for the first time or maybe a time to recommit to him, I just wanna ask you to raise your hand just so I can agree with you. If that's you, would you just lift up your hand? Amen, I see your hand. I see your hand, I see your hands to my left. If you're online, just text the word decision to 94000. We wanna know if you're allowing Jesus into your heart and your life. Those of you who just raised your hand, you made the most important decision of your life to receive Jesus, believe in Jesus, confess with your mouth that he is Lord, believe in your heart. Let the lightness, light come in to the darkness. Let the stone be rolled away. Let the seal be broken and the guards be defeated in your life. God, thank you for this moment. Thank you for the cross and the resurrection. We love you, Jesus, and we praise your name. And everyone said, amen.